Well, good morning, North Shore Alliance. Um, if you are a preteen, you are dismissed to go and hang out with Michelle Jackson um, upstairs. So go have fun, um, but not too much fun. Okay, we don't want to. We're not competing our funds this morning. Um, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I want to say a special welcome to our online guests. Thank you for joining us there as well. Um, and we get to continue uh, talking about the Book of Jeremiah. And this is week two in our new series in this book, in this book uh, a tough book. And today's message will be just a little different um, because I'm not going to deal with a specific text from the book of Jeremiah. In fact, this is kind of a second introductory sermon which gets us into the Old Testament and our understanding and our reading of that book. Uh, I want us to recognize at the outset that there are significant historical and literary and cultural gaps between us and the times of the Old Testament. There's, a, there's significant gaps between us and this space. Uh, there's um, a 2,700-year cultural gap. Uh, some of you remember reading Shakespeare. There's a large cultural gap between us and Shakespeare. That was only 500 years ago. This is 2,700 years ago. It's a very long time between us. And, but in the intervening years, there's also a kind of theological gap in our understanding of how both testaments of the Bible, both halves of our book, are the Bible. So I've got three kind of goals for this morning. Uh, in the first section, I'm going to talk about why we read the Old Testament and take some time to think about what that means and what's going on. Why, what's our justification for the Old Testament? Um, in the second section, I want to talk about Israel's story in some focus. I did it in about uh, one minute last week. We'll take a little more time to, to dance through that story to give context. And then one of the things that comes out of it is what I'm going to call the crisis of idolatry. You can't read much in the Old Testament without hearing God's judgments on idolatry. And so what does it mean for us to receive that message today? Um, so I think the pieces come together, <clears throat> but next week we're going to focus specifically on the life and times of Jeremiah within this. Uh, so this is, again, um, a kind of a broad picture, but hopefully you'll be able to come away with some really clear ideas. And um, that's why we've got notes. So let's talk about why read the Old Testament. Let's begin right here with this question. Well, doesn't the name say it all? It's an Old Testament. Why do you need old things when you have new things? Is anyone queuing up to buy an iPhone 3 these days? Why would you do that when there's an iPhone 14 out there? Isn't there such a thing as planned obsolescence? Nothing will work with the old. Are there a lot of people queuing up to download Windows XP? Okay. Nobody, right? I don't even know what number of windows are on at the moment, but this keeps advancing, right? These things are moving forward. It's old, right? Well, I want us to give us some reasons for this. So reason one why we're going to read the Old Testament is this. The Old Testament was Jesus' Bible, okay? The Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. When Jesus read the Bible, what he read was the Old Testament. That's the book he read. When Jesus quoted the Bible, you know what he quoted? The Old Testament. That's what he quoted. When Jesus learned to read, you know what he learned to read using? The Old Testament. Okay? This is the book that forms Jesus' mind and thoughts and hearts. And so I want to briefly consider a passage from the New Testament that speaks about this for a moment. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If you were Bible memory people, you probably memorized this verse, but let's, let me read through it for you now. Paul writes, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's on the screen. Let's actually recite that together because it's so important. Ready? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, so this is the Apostle Paul writing to his disciple, Timothy. Okay? Timothy was Paul's disciple. He'd raised him up, he'd trained him up, and he installed him in a church in Ephesus to be his kind of lead pastor representative in that place. And so Paul sent a letter to Timothy to encourage and guide him in these things. Now, this is well before the New Testament was written and compiled. Well, Paul's writing this, there are no gospels in existence, there's no John's revelation, there's no book of Acts, this stuff isn't there at all. Uh, there's a section of letters that Paul's written. So when Paul is talking about all scripture, what's he talking about? The Old Testament. This is the book that he has in mind. Let me go through this, just a few phrases right now, and just highlight a few things. So all scripture. Uh, in Paul's day, there were some different versions even in his day. So people spoke different languages. Some of the people spoke Hebrew and, and Aramaic, and others spoke Greek. And in time, uh, because so many people spoke different languages, they translated Scripture into Greek. And so Paul is engaging with more than one version of Scripture. Sometimes he seems to be referencing the Hebrew. Sometimes he's referencing the Greek. And there are some discrepancies between the Hebrew and Greek books. So the Hebrew version contains the 39 books that we've got today in our Bibles. The Hebrew Bible has those 39 books. But in the Greek version, there were a few extra pieces that got added in over time. Maybe you've heard of them. There's a book called the Maccabees. There's a book called the Wisdom of Solomon. And maybe you've heard of Tobit. If you've never read Tobit, it's a lot of fun. There's a dog. Uh, and that's where we get the name of the angel Raphael. Uh, and there's some funny things that happen in that story. You could read it. It's a wonderful Sunday afternoon reading <clears throat> if you're interested. Now, if you've come from a tradition, uh, some different traditions have Bibles that contain, uh, they say, with the Apocrypha, and they'll contain these extra books. Uh, Catholic Bibles today have these books, and if you're in an Anglican tradition, you'll have these extra books. I often think, I think it'd be funny, sometimes you'll see like with Apocrypha on the front of a Bible, and I think other things we sell should have with Apocrypha attached to it. Never mind, that's a really niche, nerdy joke, and it excites me in these ways. Now, um, traditionally what we say, these books are all worth reading. It's worth reading the Wisdom of Solomon. It's worth reading the book of Tobit. It's worth reading, uh, it's one time probably worth reading the Maccabees because it's weird. Um, but, uh, but we recognize that these books, the reason they're not in our Bibles, it's because they're Greek and not Hebrew. Okay? They're Greek books. They don't have Hebrew counterparts. So our Bibles contain only the Hebrew books. And that's the decision that many of the reformers made. All right? All Scripture. So Paul's got this idea of Scripture. It's God-breathed, he says. He, I think he, um, it's one of these rarest words, God breathed. It's literally one word. It's that God's breath seems to be coming through. We have this uh, fa fancy word in theology we use called inspired. We'd say it's all inspired. And so we're saying that God speaks through and alongside the authors of Scripture and editors of Scripture to get his message through. God had power involved in this. And I, I want you to remove from your minds any idea of possession. That somehow, like, you know, the authors of Scripture, like, uh, St. Luke sat down to write, and he picked up his pencil, and then he went, oh, you know, and he starts writing, and God is motivating, he's possessing him in a way. I want you to remove that. I want you to think more in terms of, say, if it's wind, think about wind in a sail, that Luke is listening to God, paying attention to God. He puts up his sail, and the direction in which he's writing is motivated entirely by how God is leading him, okay? So maybe think of it that way as well. Now, um, the authority of Scripture also requires interpretation. 
Um, just because it's God-breathed, it gives it a kind of authority, it gives it a, a gravitas, but it doesn't mean um, it's just we read it and we understand it completely. We have to be intelligent readers. My favorite example of this is in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4. I'll just read this verse first. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. That seems like pretty good advice, right? Some of, have any of you encountered idiots in your life? Okay? So don't... <laughs> right? And Proverbs 26.4 says, you know what? When you have counted the idiot and you know the idiot, don't answer them according to their folly, right? Or you'll become the fool like them. What's the next verse say? 26.5. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes, right? Now, if you obey this 100% and spend any amount of time on the internet, you will never get away from answering idiots on the internet, right? Your life will be consumed by this. These are obviously contradictory. Which one are you supposed to do? Do you answer the fool in his folly, or do you not answer the fool in his folly? Well, part of wisdom is learning to discern, hang on, which one am I supposed to obey at which time? Do you understand how the authority of the word is not necessarily just a blanket? You've got, you have to be a thinker. You have to pay attention. You have to listen to what God is saying. There are some, and just to wrap this up, there are some encounters in your life where you are supposed to respond with the right answers for people, and there are some encounters in your life when you're supposed to walk away. But you have to discern which is which. God's not going to tell you as a, as a, as a, as a um, wash over everything how to do it all the time. Okay, so we have to be intelligent readers. I like that example. It's one of my favorites. So back to the Second Timothy passage. Uh, he says that the scriptures are profitable. Uh, useful, beneficial, and he lists a number of things, teaching. So the Old Testament is beneficial for instructing God's people in God's thoughts and ways and plans. It's good for teaching. And then he uses the word reproof. So if there are things that are out of order and wrong, Scripture is appropriate for correcting those wrongs. And then he uses the word correction. It sounds very similar to reproof, but it seems to mean something more like uh, for readjusting or restoration or even improvement. Things are okay, but they'll get better by means of the application of God's Word. And then he finishes by saying, for training in righteousness. Righteousness is this word. It's right relatedness with God and with one another. Uh, but also it's having a sense of God's justice in our lives. And so Scripture gets us in line with God's way of thinking and how he wants to approach the world. Then he finishes by saying, so that the man of God may be adequate in 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, Scripture is useful for everyone. I think that's important to qualify. But Paul has Timothy in mind here specifically. Remember, Timothy is his disciple, installed as pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he wants Timothy to be relying on the Word of God in his public ministry and private ministry and how he approaches people. This is the bedrock of what Timothy is supposed to do. Oh, I went off. I'm back on. Boy, it was, um, it was God's will. It's Timothy who will be, through his study of God's word, doing the teaching, correcting, and the rebuking, and the training up of people for a life of righteousness. Okay. All that is to say, if the Old Testament is good for these purposes, it's good for us too. It continues to be good. It was Jesus' Bible. It's our Bible as well. The book that Jesus quoted should be a book that we're ready to quote as well. The book that Jesus studied should be a book that we study as well. The book that Jesus taught from should be a book that we teach from just as well. Jesus' Bible is our Bible too, okay? So that's the beginning of why we want to read the Old Testament. Reason number two is shorter uh, but needs to be said. The Old Testament is God's Word. Now, that's obvious, hopefully, but we still need to make it explicit. The Old Testament is also the Word of God for us. 
So, the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is God's Word. The story of Jesus, excuse me, the story of Israel, God's Word for us. The story that informs Jesus, God's Word for us. And the simple why is because the one God revealed as Yahweh in the Old Testament is more fully revealed as Jesus in the New. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And so the word of Yahweh in the Old Testament continues through in the New for us. What changes throughout the circumstances is not God. God hasn't changed. What's changed is um, the circumstances in which his character is revealed. His character is the same. It's just the refraction of light in different times makes it look a little different. So God hasn't changed, just our understanding of him changes over time. One of my favorite verses with respect to this is Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, where God says, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now what he's saying is, he says, I do not change. I don't change my commitments. I don't change my covenants. I am clinging, I cling to my own faithfulness. I don't bend or sway. You, you change. You're not stable. You don't keep your commitments. But thankfully, because I don't change, you survive. If I changed, you're all gone. Okay? So it's a wonderfully good news because it testifies both to the stability of God and reminds us that our, our survival is resting upon his stability of character. And so God makes promises in the Old Testament according to his character. He covenants with people. And we should know these promises since they're the basis of our ongoing survival. This gets us to reason number three. Reason number three why the Old Testament is good for us is this. In Christ, Israel's story is our story. In Christ, the story of Israel becomes our story as well. Now, I I need to acknowledge that there could be some very complex theology and some very hot disagreement about the nature of Israel and modern Israel and the church and how things go. And I'm going to sidestep all of it right now. Okay, so I'm not going to say anything about it, but I want to give you some context and a little history to understand how we get where we are. So let's just be explicit about a couple things. Jesus is born. Jesus, the king, is born to a Jewish family. He is a Jew. He is in the line of David to become a Jewish king. Okay? Jesus is Jewish. <laughs> let's be really explicit about this. He is a Middle Eastern man okay? um, raised in an, an, a Semitic religion. And to be even more explicit, Christianity is and always has been essentially a Jewish sect. Okay? We're a subsect out of Judaism. So God, through Peter and Paul in the New Testament, revealed that his plan to bless all nations through Abraham, Genesis 12 says, through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. And God's revealing through Peter and Paul that actually I'm going to bless all nations, meaning all people, through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, which is an astonishment to them. They don't know what to do with it. They're kind of like, uh-oh, now, now what do we do? And so there's this responses and reactions. And so Gentiles, these non-Jews, are introduced very early into the church life. Remember Luke, who writes our gospel, Luke, in the book of Acts, is one of these converted Gentiles into the Christian faith. And the earliest recorded conflicts we have in the church, the very first things that start, people start to wonder what's going on, are how do we relate the Jewish and Gentile believers together, Right? And they're asking questions like, how much of the law are these Gentile Christians supposed to follow? Imagine if you came into church today and the greeters welcomed you and said, hi, welcome. Uh, Welcome to our church. If you'd like more information on circumcision, please get this pamphlet over here. And if you'd like to know how to follow the food laws, we've got a whole dietary restriction thing over here. Imagine if we showed up for a membership class and the first question was, are you circumcised yet? Okay. 
And you're getting some idea of kind of some of the conflicts people were having because these markers of Jewish identity that made them who they were separate from the world were not, the Gentiles come in and don't have them. And so there, there was tension and conflict. And the Acts Church has a council, and they get together, and they decide publicly that many of the outward commandments of the law were not to be uh, laid upon the Gentiles. Okay? Outward commandments. Now, some things happen. In about 200 years, the Gentiles in the church far outnumber the Jews. The, the program is way more successful then the, the people are just it, my, amazingly successful. In fact, within 400 years, the church essentially will topple the Roman Empire, right? It's just this massively growing thing, and it's mostly Gentiles at that point. Now, the New Testament texts within the first 200 years have now been written. The vast majority of our New Testament texts are written by Jews, with the exception of Luke, writing um, Acts, and, uh, Acts and Luke. And then certain Christian thinkers about this time begin to raise questions about the relation of Christianity to the so-called Old Testament. I mean, if we've got this new covenant and the Holy Spirit, what need do we have for this other stuff? They begin to ask these questions. We don't have to follow these laws. It's all kind of old and laws. Maybe it's not important. Enter Marcion. I'm going to throw Marcion. Here's a picture of him. Uh, He's an early heretic, and he's here. He's holding his heresies, and he's got, there's a foot on top of him. Do you see the foot crushing? This may not be Marcion. It's just some heretic in a window, okay? These things. Marcion is an early uh, Christian bishop who begins to believe that, you know what? The God of the Old Testament is not necessary. In fact, the Old Testament itself is not necessary. We have this kind of new religion of Jesus that's coming uh, to fruition. He's got a lot of followers. And it's such a powerful thing, and they begin to take it in council. And what happens is in about 144, he is formally declared a heretic and kicked out of the church. Okay? In other words, you can't cut off the Old Testament and remain Christian. It's out. Okay? Not allowed to do. Now, the point of all this kind of historical overview is to say this. From the earliest days of Christianity, there's been a temptation to kind of shy away from the Old Testament and just focus on the new. Just spend our time with Jesus and ignore ignore the fact that the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. But the key to remember is that that has always, from very beginning, been denounced as heretical, meaning outside of orthodoxy, meaning a deviant belief, meaning not something any good-standing Christian can believe. Uh, which gives one of the further lies, if you follow 20th century history at all. Remember, the Nazis were developing a theology that tried to strip Jesus of all his Judaism. They tried to make him especially white and Aryan um, so that he could represent the ubermensch, okay? the man of all men. And it's, a, it's funny to think how, how could, and I'm sorry, what's, I'm getting interested now, but it's funny how many German theologians, well-trained, thoughtful, intelligent, um, in some ways men of God, believed this. Which means not that we should look at the Nazis and say, oh, how stupid Nazis were. We should look at ourselves and say, wait a minute, where are the seeds of that where we could believe that too? The danger is there. Coming back to this reason that in Christ, Israel's story is our story, let me really highlight what I mean by this. What I mean is that Jesus, especially in his baptism, takes up the narrative of Israel's story. I've highlighted these things before, but I'll just note them again. Jesus is in the water, comes out, and he's in the wilderness for 40 days. Just like Israel goes through the Red Sea, comes out, and wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay? He's taking up the story of Israel. Jesus goes um, into the water, comes out, and a dove, remember, descends like the Holy Spirit upon him. 
And it's reminding us of Noah's flood. What happened after the flood? The dove went out and came back with a promise that there is hope after judgment. The hope of the Spirit comes to us after judgment. And the other echo is that the, waters of, uh, the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters at creation and descends in the voice of God's Spirit. And Jesus comes out of the water to show that this is the new creation of God. He is taking up all of the story of the Old Testament and making it his own. He comes and he takes up the promises of God for the kingship of Israel, for the inheritance of the land, but he's not interested in the 90-mile strip of land alongside the Mediterranean Sea. He's interested in taking up the kingship of the whole earth. And then we have things between the parallels, between the one and the many. This is always throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah, there's a balance between, is Isaiah speaking of himself or of all Israel? In the Psalms, you're like, is, the, is David talking about himself or all Israel? And the answer is yes, he's doing both. And Jesus, in becoming king, takes up, he becomes all of Israel in himself, but he's also just one person. He takes up the story, he inhabits it. And that, by the way, is why the cross works for us. Because the one Jesus takes up all of our humanity and does something on our behalf. And so he becomes a representative king. And so when we come to faith and are baptized into Christ, this story becomes our story. And these books become our books that shape us and make us the people we're called to be. Uh, there's a theological way of saying this. It's in your fill-in-the-blanks. It says there is a covenantal continuity between the events of the Old Testament and the events of Jesus' life and us. Covenantal continuity. Covenant, not a word we're using very often. It's actually the same word as testament. So we could call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, just like we call it Old Testament and New Testament. A covenant is a blood agreement an agreement made in blood between two people. Uh, when Abraham, uh, you actually, the phrase in Hebrew is you cut a covenant. And what happens is really interesting. They cut, they cut an ox in two and they split it apart and um, they walk between it. And the, uh, the, the promise of the covenant is this. May, uh, may this happen to me if I don't keep my word. And what happens is, is that God himself passes through the ox and says, may I myself be destroyed if I don't keep my word. I have sworn by myself. Whoa. And so God will never break his covenant. That's the promise it makes to us. So we talk about Jesus' work. We do it with reference to the scriptures. We talk about the promise of the new covenant. Uh, again, we have this language of new and old. It's confusing to us because they're antonyms, right? New is the opposite of old. Uh, maybe slightly better language would be the first covenant and then the new covenant. Um, it's not that it's been replaced. It's not that it's been made obsolete. It's not that it's been done away with. We might even say it's been fulfilled, that's better language. Fulfilled, not abolished. Or fulfilled in the way that, that, um, that the last puzzle piece makes sense of the whole puzzle. And now you can enjoy the picture and say, oh, now what do I do with this? And there's other things that happened. Okay? Uh, there's an old phrase. It's rooted in, it's, it's from St. Augustine. He says, the New Testament is in the old concealed. The Old Testament is in the new revealed. And I think he's right. The New Testament, the content of what God was doing in the New Testament is there throughout the Old Testament, but it's concealed until you see it later. And the Old Testament is in the New revealed. When you come to the New Testament, you get explanations of it. Uh, my professor in seminary, Ian Proven, used to say that the New Testament was a brief exegetical commentary on the Old. It's the first book of commentary, just a tiny couple hundred page commentary on everything that had gone before. Okay, so... Nevertheless, in church history, we have struggled to read the Old Testament well. Uh, Marcion's impulses have given rise to a number of modern temptations. I want to give a couple examples briefly of how we can go wrong. 
Uh, one of the ways we can go wrong reading the Old Testament is by assuming or presuming that every text has to be about Jesus or it doesn't have value, right? The real meaning of every single passage of the Old Testament is that it gets us to Jesus. And sometimes we have to shoehorn Jesus in just to make it fit. Um, I've, read, I've read study Bibles where they read uh, some of the, there's, there's like recipe passages in the Old Testament. Have you seen, maybe you've come across some of these. They talk about like how, how to build your offerings and things. And then the footnotes are like, well, clearly these recipes get us to Jesus by talking about the leaven of new, and they do these like really convoluted. And I'm like, no, it's just a recipe, right? It's just telling you how to make your incense or your bread for these things. It's not getting, you don't have to shoehorn Jesus in to give value to that part of the Old Testament. But it's a temptation that we have, a temptation we bring. Sometimes we read the Psalms, and we're reading, um, some, I was reading Psalm 31. That's the Psalm that has the phrase, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And you're like, oh, this is about Jesus. But then the moment you make it about Jesus, you stop reading it as God's word for you. And maybe God has something to say to you in that Psalm. See? By making it about Jesus, we sidestep our own obedience to the text. It's a temptation. I just want to acknowledge it. Uh, a second thing we do, I think that's an error, is that we mine the Old Testament uh, for, not for God's word for us, but for kind of like, um, loot it for eschatological clues. Eschatology is a study of the end of the world, right? And a lot of people read the Old Testament, and they're like, there's code in here for what's going to happen next, right? Uh, you guys remember the, back, uh, I remember this, 20, 30 years ago, when, uh, remember when Gog and Magog, they're like, I think, I think this is Russia, the Soviets, right? Not, not the modern federation, but it was the Soviets, right? And, the, and there's nuclear bombs, and actually, you know, and they're, they're really excited to decode the Old Testament as eschatological fodder for making sense of things. And what they did was they, they took the difficulties, and they used another difficult lens, and they put them together to make sense of it, right? And so they used two difficulties to cancel each other out, and then and you could feel good about yourself. You would build charts and do things and decode these things. Then he missed the fact that actually it's God's word for us, not God's word projected into making us feel good about the future. Okay? We'll come back to this in some time. Okay? Against these things, here's what we remember. The Old Testament is Jesus' Bible. It's God's word, and because of Christ, it's our story too in continuity of God's work throughout time. Okay. That was part one, and that was most of the sermon. Um, but let's, let me uh, shift into Israel's story. And I want to turn uh, to give a brief overview. I gave a hyper brief overview last week. I'm going to give um, uh, not an extensive overview, uh, but a little more elaborate overview of what happens in the story of the Old Testament now. So 39 books, hundreds of pages. How do we tighten this up? I've got, there's going to be 17 words, okay? Uh, we're going to go quickly through them. They're all going to appear on the screen, so don't panic. Um, they'll be up there, and you're not, you're not going to be caught up. But let's talk about these things. Each one will appear as I talk about it. So, the story of the Bible begins with the story of creation. God, who is sovereign and powerful, is personally responsible for everything we see. Think about this. The earth is not a cosmic accident. It's not the byproduct of some cosmic battle between warring gods that some of the other creation myths have. No, everything you see and touch and experience is the creation intentionally of God, whose name will later be revealed as Yahweh. Humankind especially has a special place in this creation because we are the image and likeness of God in creation. But this creation is not perfect, and from its initial innocence, mankind has undergone what's called a fall. We've disobeyed. We've rejected God's will and chosen our own will, and the result inevitably is death, both spiritually and physically, which is represented by our separation from God, from division from one another, our discomfort at work, and the shame we feel within ourselves. 
There's a profound breaking. And yet, God who created this world is not willing for his good creation to be defaced, and so he begins to reveal his plan, specifically through call. He calls Abraham. From creating all of humanity, um, God chose to begin to work through a one family and one set of descendants of one particular human. That human's name was Abram. His wife was Sarai. They become the parents of Isaac, Isaac of Jacob, and Jacob becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. God's call for Abraham, this is Genesis 12, was the promise that through Abraham, God would bless all the nations of the earth. This is what God sets out to do. The call in time leads to covenant. We've talked about this already. A blood agreement between Abraham and Yahweh that God would personally guarantee the promise he'd made. Abraham for himself would, park, would, excuse, would mark himself and all his sons with an outward sign. That was circumcision as a reminder of God's covenant promise. Now, in time, God would give Abraham the land of Palestine, and Abraham's descendants would outnumber the stars. So these descendants swell, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to the twelve. During Jacob's life, his family goes down to Egypt to escape a famine, and there they become a great, vast nation of people. They become the people of God, God's special people, the Israelites. It's there they become enslaved by the pharaohs and suffer greatly. But God hasn't forgotten his people. He's remembered his call and covenant, so he, rises, he lifts up one Israelite named Moses to lead them in their great exodus out of Egypt. Systematically, God dismantles Egyptian ideology, especially the false godhood of the pharaohs. Uh, the, the slaughter of the innocents, the slaughter, not the innocents, the slaughter of the firstborn is a, a targeting of the, the godhood of Pharaoh. You think you're God, but you're not. Okay? And you think you are God and your son is a God. So God does these things through signs, wonders, plagues. God defends his people, leads them out by the hand of Moses, and begins to define them as a nation in their own right. Okay? After the night of Passover, passing through the Red Sea, the Israelites gather around Mount Sinai. There they receive the law. And the law is what would shape them as a people and guide, the kind of, guide their lives as the kind of people they're expected to live as God's people. Now, the law has two focuses. Two focuses. First, establish the godly conduct of people who bear God's name. Second, establish a code of holiness which would mark God's people out of the nations of the earth. So it's moral formation and outward formation. There's, a, there's an inward formation and a missional formation of the law. Now this exchange of the law further cements the covenant relationship between God and his people. God essentially says, do these things and I will be your God. Fail them and I will reject you and take you from the land. But immediately the Israelites descend into difficulty. And even on the foothills of Mount Sinai, they show their hearts are divided toward God. They arrive on the boundaries of Palestine, and their fear of the inhabitants is greater than their fear of God. And the same people who had witnessed firsthand God's miracles in Egypt doubted God's power to lead them into other lands, so God condemns an entire generation to exile. They're exiled out of space. They're going to wander in the wilderness around Sinai for 40 years until the entire generation that had come out of Egypt would pass away. At the end of exile, Israel finally enters into the land. They're given commands about how to enter, how to organize, how to conquer. The land was their special pro promise. And um, in Scripture, land becomes compared to a vineyard. I've set this part of ground around, uh, this part of land apart for you. You're going in to be my vineyard stewards, and you're supposed to produce fruit. But the fruit isn't wealth. The fruit is righteousness and godliness. This is what he's after. And yet the Israelites still don't obey God properly. When entering the land, they failed to remove its original inhabitants, as God had commanded. And rather than becoming a people set apart as God planned, um, they adopt and intermix with it. So he hands them over to their enemies. And when their need becomes tough, he raises up judges. Judges are men and women who are godly, who deliver God's people. They're anointed by the Spirit. Uh, before long, the Israelites... Um, 
it's not enough to have judges. They want to be like other nations, and so they beg for a king. And Samuel, the last judge of Israel, anoints Saul to be their first king. Saul looked the part. Remember, he's tall, he's strong, he's handsome, but his character is flawed. And so in time, the kingdom passes from Saul to this young lieutenant, David, who will then unify all of Israel under one king and conquer Israel's enemies. David's son Solomon builds a temple. Now, previously, Israel worshipped the Lord any place where they'd encountered him. Every place where there'd been some memorable encounter, they would sacrifice. Now, Israel is centralizing their worship in Jerusalem. And there, the tabernacle of God's presence, which wandered with them in the wilderness, would find a permanent home. Very quickly, however, both the land and the temple would begin to become idols in the hearts of the Israelites. They would trust more in these objects than the God who gave them. So after Solomon's death, the nation is divided. There's division. To the north, ten of the tribes form the kingdom of Israel. To the south, Judah and Benjamin, parts of a few other tribes, become the kingdom of Judah. And Israel will never again be a unified people from this time until its end. To the north, the kingdom of Israel wanders further and further apostasy, specifically the worship of Canaanite gods, which are supposed to be eradicated. To the south, good kings alternate with bad. In the cycle of decay, God sends prophets who speaks his words of warning and calls to repentance. If Israel would not return to the law, to God's law, to his holiness, to his ways, they would lose their temple, their land, and their lives. And Israel's neglect of the covenant was placing their special status as God's people at risk. God's warnings go unheeded. People don't listen. An empire entered into war um, of conquest raging across the known world. They invaded from the north, enslaved the northern kingdom, and sent its citizens off into exile. Never again would there be a northern kingdom of Israel. Okay? Uh, they used a, a repatriation program, so they brought in other conquered peoples, and those peoples intermarried with a few remaining Israelites, and they uh, became what was called the Samaritans. So if you've heard about the Samaritans, the Samaritans are half-breed Israelites who worship other gods. Okay? In the mind of, of, of those Jews at that time. 6th century B.C., finally, this is Jeremiah's era, the end of the southern kingdom came. Assyria had fallen to Babylon, and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar invaded southern Israel, burned Jerusalem in the temple, and deported its people into what's called the Babylonian exile. There, after a period of 70 years or so, a ragtag bunch of Israelites returned to the barren land and burnt out city, where they attempted to rebuild their walls, reconsecrate their worship. But from the time of Babylon to the time of Christ, the nation of Israel would live in a time of persisting exile. They'd never be home again in the same way. In the midst of all their struggles and all their despair, one thing remained, God's promise. The promise remains. God had promised Abraham that he would bless all nations through him. God had promised Israel through Moses that one day one greater than Moses would come to lead them. And God had promised David that someone would sit on his throne forever. Although they were landless and templeless and powerless, the promise of the Creator God, the God who called and covenanted and rescued and led His people, that promise still stood. And so the remnants of Israel dutifully awaited the arrival of a Messiah, that is, the Anointed One, like the kings and judges of old, who would come to fulfill God's promises to His people and lead them in a new exodus out of their exile and into the presence and fellowship of God. Now, that's the Old Testament in 1,500 words. Okay? That's the story. <laughs> Um, that's, that's what sets us up for the arrival of Jesus. This sense of anticipation and what God is doing. And next week, we're going to focus on how Jeremiah fits within this program. Uh, now, I had promised to talk about what I called the crisis of idolatry, and I'm going to skip most of it. 
the only thing I'm going to say is the fill in the blank, which is this. Idolatry is false trust. You've been given an opportunity to trust in Almighty God, to trust in what's right, trust in His ways, and we've placed our trust in other places. And I'll just say two things briefly about it. One, in the ancient world, it's easy to think of idolatry as statues, right? They're worshiping statues and things, and you know, they're, they've, they've built an idol. Um, but it's also clear, that's true, that's a real concern, but it's also clear that the Israelites can commit idolatry with God. So when they come down from Sinai, Aaron has built the golden calf. And what does Aaron call the golden calf? He says, this is Yahweh who brought you up out of Egypt. See, they're worshiping Yahweh, but they're using the world's ways to do it. And that's idolatry too. And in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 4, Jeremiah condemns the Israelites because they say, we've got the temple. How can things go wrong for us? They're trusting in the form of religion rather than in the God who calls them. That's also idolatry. Now, we've got a spate of cultural idolatries around us, like the idolatries of acceptance, uh, the worship of things like sports. I'm not picking on anyone at the moment. The worship of things like sports. Uh, we've got the idolatries of our freedoms. We want to be liked. We have the idolatries of nationalism. We have the idolatries of feeling confident in ourselves while blaming the Americans for everything that's wrong in the world. <laughs> um, we have all these things that we, all these places we can be, have false trust. And so because of that, you know what we need? We need to hear the word of the Old Testament, which calls us to relinquish our idolatries and trust in the Lord our God more and more. I'd like to invite our worshipers to come back up to the platform. Um, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. And I just want to invite you this morning uh, to a couple of things. Uh, we also have two we have prayer teams. So we have uh, Leah and Daniel will be up here in the balcony uh, I know some of you sit in the balcony because you want to be invisible, and that's okay. You're allowed to do that, but you still need prayer. And the prayer is available right up here, and it's up there because it's easier to hear. And then uh, Kirsten and, I'm um, sorry, Roach, this is what happens when you, when you cut the end of your sermon off. Uh, Kirsten and Brenda are back over here in this uh, corner. Again, uh, we're not hiding prayer. It's just easier to hear one another back on this spot. Okay. So I want to invite you. Perhaps you have... Um, Perhaps you've never read this book as the, God's word for you, and I want to invite you to that today, to come back to it in a fresh way. Um, and perhaps you've dismissed it, and perhaps you've thought, ah, oh, it's not a good enough. I don't like reading that stuff. I don't, I don't want it. I want to give you a chance to repent of that idea this morning um, as we worship now. And I want to give you a chance to come and receive the story of Jesus. Maybe you've never fully adopted that, man, this is my story too. This is where I belong. And I want to give you that chance right now to inhabit that story. Will you stand, let me pray, and then we'll worship. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, the way you have led us through your study of the Old Testament. Um, and I pray that we can receive it, not only today, but in the coming weeks and months, as your good word for us, your people. I pray, Lord, there's anyone here today who's never, um, never really stepped into that story, never really adopted um, you as Lord, that you would draw close and show them, Lord, that you are the way of salvation and that with you we take up your promises, Father, to all Israel and through them to the whole world. These things I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.